German is the only language in which you can say I love you and it sounds like a threat. <laughs> you know, ich liebe dich. Really? Do you want to settle that out in the hall? Well, it's so great to be with you and to have this uh, fine congregation here and uh, I uh, have much to share. So normally I spend a little bit of time uh, telling you some stories, but we're going to get into it, except to say this, that tomorrow, God willing, my wife and I fly back to the great city of Chicago, the city of righteousness and love and truth and justice. <laughs> it gets cold in Chicago, not like it is here. It gets cold. In fact, one day last winter, according to the media, and if it's in the media, you know that it's true, it was so cold that some members of our Chicago City Council were actually seen with their hands in their own pockets. <laughs> uh, it gets cold in Chicago. My wife and I live close to O'Hare Field. Great big huge jets fly over our house. In fact, one day I was just walking from the dining room to the bedroom and a stewardess told me to sit down. <laughs> Pray for us as you think of the city of Chicago, as you think of Moody Church, and visit us at Moody Church, and God will bless us. Well, it's a huge topic, and thank you for giving me so much time, Pastor. I mean, this is unbelievable. It's 20 after, and I'm on. It's my responsibility to speak. It's your responsibility to listen, and I've been praying that we shall end at the same time. <laughs> There was a pastor who was preaching a sermon that was too long, not Pastor Davy, but some other, and somebody got up and began to leave the room, and the pastor called him out, just like I would if one of you began to leave tonight. <laughs> and he said, why are you leaving? And the guy said, I'm going to get a haircut. And the pastor said, why didn't you get a haircut before you came in here? And he shouted back, when I came in here, I didn't need one. <laughs> So with that, we're going to plunge right into the question of pluralism, the question of how do we live in a culture with different religions. We do live at a very interesting time in American history. We live at a time when uh, God is supposed to stay on the other side of the separation of church and state. That wall is very high, and God had better stay on his side of that wall. After 9-11, God was allowed uh, to come back into American life, and God bless you signs were everywhere, even on porn shops. Everybody believed that it was God's responsibility to bless us. And uh, the God who was brought back at that time, by the way, is not the God of the Bible. It is the God of American civil religion, the God who can only bless us. But biblically, God says in the Old Testament, Behold, I lay before you blessing and cursing. Jeremiah Wright, that pastor in Chicago who received so much publicity, was wrong in saying we should say, God damn America. But it is true that God blesses nations that are obedient to him, and he can also judge those that are not obedient to him. In fact, I've written a booklet that I gave to your pastor entitled, Is God on America's Side?, where I go into the kinds of judgments that are happening in America today and where, uh, with God's help, I try to sort out many of these issues. But that's not the theme that I have before me. The question is, how do we live in the midst of a society where 
Our tax dollars are being spent today to build such things as prayer rooms in high school for Muslims, but where Christianity is being marginalized and where there are people in Washington who believe that we are the enemy and we have to be silenced. How do we live in the midst of a culture like that? So what I decided to do, and thank you for giving me the privilege, is to speak to you on the topic of freedom of religion, yes, but what we should do in the midst of our culture, and also to give you perhaps 15 minutes of thumbnail sketch on the history of freedom of religion so that you might understand what an anomaly it really is to live in a country with freedom of religion. The Old Testament did not have freedom of religion. Just ask the prophets of Baal as uh, Elijah took 400 of them to the Kaishan brook and had them put to death. Uh, God did not permit people in the Old Testament to have freedom of religion. Heretics were put to death. Well, let's go to ancient Rome. Rome did not have freedom of religion either, did it? As a matter of fact, the Romans had many gods. My wife and I were in Rome about six uh, weeks ago, and we were in the Pantheon where you had all of the different gods at one time, the Roman gods that were there. But the Christians believed that they should have allegiance only to one god, namely Jesus, and Rome couldn't tolerate that. If Jesus were one among many, they were very happy to accommodate the Christians. But because the Christians believed that Jesus was Lord, King, and God, because of that, the Christians were persecuted and they were put to death. Remember this, in those days and throughout all of European history until 1648, there was the belief that you had one king, one religion, and one law, and all three of those had to be in sync. It was unthinkable to the Romans and throughout European history. It was unthinkable that you could have people in a territory where a king had one religion and some of the people had a different religion. That was unthinkable until 1648. Well, let's go to the time of Constantine 312. 312, Constantine is crossing the Tiber River at the Molivian Bridge. And by the way, when my wife and I were there with the tour group, we insisted that we go to the Molivian Bridge. Our guide said it's the first time it has ever been requested. Because it is there where Constantine had his vision that said, in this sign, conquer. And he conquered Rome and believed that the sign that he saw was the sign of the Christian God, the cross. And so he decided that his army would become Christians. He had them baptized in the river, and he fought in the name of Jesus and won. So Rome was Christianized. That's where you have the beginning of Christendom. Now the pagans were the ones who were persecuted. You couldn't get a job unless you were, quote, a Christian. Christians were converted in mass. You had mass conversions and The pagans didn't like it, but they all were supposed to become Christians, and if not, they were the ones that were in trouble. Well, this is a brief parenthesis, but what happened is they brought much of their paganism into the church, and the church accommodated them. For example, the Romans, for example, had gods. They had a god if you were going to go on a journey, a god if you were going to buy something, a god if you were going to sell something. The people couldn't bring these gods into Christendom. That was too radical. But these assignments then were given to saints, to St. Jude, to St. Christopher, and all of the other saints. And so you have a great synthesis between 
paganism and Christianity. In fact, our tour guide actually said that. She said Catholicism is a synthesis between paganism and Christianity. But uh, Christendom then developed, and these people were not converted. The masses weren't. They were not saved. They were not born again. But they became Christians. They were Christianized. And now they persecuted the pagans. As a matter of fact, there were some people who broke from the church. They were called Donatists. They believed in a pure church, a church that was distinct from society. And they were all put to death. They were all exterminated. Why? Because remember, it was unthinkable that you could have one king, one law, and people of different religions. Everyone had to be lockstep in terms of that religion. And infant baptism, by the way, was the sign of Christendom. It held, it held Christendom together. You were born not only a German, but you were baptized as a Christian and you were Christianized or any of the other countries. It became very important, as we shall see in a moment. And so you have this idea then. In fact, uh, heretics also were put to death. And uh, you know something about the Inquisition and so forth. Because remember, it was unthinkable that you could have one ruler with a set of laws and people of different religions. Now, some of this all changed under Martin Luther. It began to change. Back in 1521, Martin Luther was taken to the Diet of Worms. Uh, the Diet of Worms, I know uh, we say in English. Uh, by the way, it is a diet that apparently really does work, uh, the Diet of Worms. And uh, Luther was taken there. It was said that 90% of the people were for him and the other 10% were shouting death to the Pope. He goes there as a great hero because he is the one who has begun the Reformation just a few years earlier. And it is there at the Diet of Worms that Luther said something that was so radical that we as Westerners don't even grasp it. You remember he came before the emperor. Charles V was there. You had all the German princes. And Luther was asked, are these your writings? And he said, yes. And then they began to debate with him about it and asked him to recant. And he said he needed to think about it. And he came back the next day when there were even more people there. It is something that I hope to see someday in heaven because I'm sure that God videotaped this critical moment. And I think in heaven we're going to see videos of the faithfulness of God's people. But anyway, so Luther is there. Can I take out time? Oh, the pastor was so gracious to give me time to read the prayer that Luther prayed the night before the Diet of Orms because he knew... That if he did not recant, he fully expected to be put to death. Why? Heretics were put to death during that period of time. Let me read his prayer. That night he prayed, O Almighty and everlasting God, how terrible is this world. Behold, it openeth its mouth to swallow me up, and I have so little trust in thee. How weak is the flesh, and Satan is how strong. If it is only in the strength of this world that I must put my trust, all is over. My last hour is come. My condemnation has been pronounced. Oh God, oh God, do thou help me against all the wisdom of this world. Do this. Thou shouldest do this alone, for it is not my work but thine. I have nothing to do here, nothing to contend for with these great ones of the world. I should desire to see my days flow on peaceful and happy, but the cause is thine, and it is a righteous and eternal cause. 
Oh, Lord, help me. Faithful and unchangeable God, in no man do I place my trust. It would all be vain. All that is of man is uncertain. All that cometh of man fails. O oh God, O oh God, hearest thou me not? My God, art thou dead? No, thou canst not die. Thou only hidest thyself. Thou hast chosen me for this work. I know it well. Act then, O God, to stand at my side for the sake of thy well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, who is my defense, my shield, my strong tower. And then after a moment of struggle, he continued, O Lord, where stayest thou? O my God, where art thou? Come, I am ready. I am ready to lay down my life for thy truth, patient as a lamb, for it is the cause of justice. I will never separate myself from thee, neither now nor through eternity. And though all the world should be filled with devils, though my body, which is still the work of thy hand, should be slain, stretched out upon the pavement, or cut to pieces, reduced to ashes, my soul is thine. Yes, thy word is my assurance of it. My soul belongs to thee. It shall abide with thee forever. Help me, O God. Amen. Next day, Luther is brought in. There's the Roman Emperor, Charles V. There are all the representatives of Germany. And he is asked, do you recant? And finally, he said these words, absolutely revolutionary, like an explosion in history. My conscience is taken captive by the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot and I will not recant, so help me God. Here I stand, I can do no other. Amen. It is said that there was a hush throughout the crowd, and Luther was allowed to leave, but he knew that there was a price on his head, and indeed, Charles V, the next day, gave an order that whoever finds Luther can put him to death. But the idea, the idea that conscience should be above the church, that conscience should be above the state, that my conscience should not be dictated to by my king, by my prince, by my ruler, was an unthinkable thought that needed a long time to work itself out. But that was the seed of what we call today freedom of conscience, freedom of religion. Eight years later, there was a diet. It was called the Diet of Spire. Charles V called it to bring about some unity in his empire. I wish I could tell you about Charles V and the siege of Vienna. The Turks were surrounding Vienna, and that's why Luther was allowed to live. But we can't go into all of these interesting things. What you need to do is come with me sometime because I lead tours to the sites of the Reformation. My wife and I have done that five or six times. But the point is that at the Diet of Spire, there was a decision made. The decision was this, that there could be now Lutheran territories in Germany. And if you were a Lutheran, you could move from where you were to go to a Lutheran territory with a Lutheran prince. And over here, you had Catholic territories with Catholic princes. And if you were now found as a Catholic in a Lutheran territory, you could move to the Catholic territory. This was the first step in freedom of religion. But the problem is that Charles V, being a strong Catholic, said that Catholics could hold meetings in Lutheran territories, but Lutherans could not hold church services in Catholic territories. 
And what happened there is that the Lutherans protested, and that's why they became known as Protestants. They protested the unfairness of what Charles V decided to do. Now, at that time, of course, they were all opposed to the Anabaptists, and I need to tell you this, folks. This is an unbelievable story, but what I tell you tonight is true. Even after the Reformation, even after Luther began and said, my conscience was taken captive by the word of God, what you have after that period of time is the rebaptizers, those who studied the Bible and became convinced that they should not have been baptized as infants, but they should have been baptized as adults upon profession of faith. And so they baptized themselves. And would you believe that the official state, with the approval of reformers, had them put to death? When we go to Zurich, we go to the Lamont River. And I take the tour group to a place where Felix Mons and five or six others were drowned. They took little rafts and they put these uh, Anabaptists who had baptized one another on the little raft. They pushed it out into the water. They capsized it. And they drowned them. And even Swingley, the great reformer, standing on the shore, said about one of his friends, Felix Mons, if he wishes to go under the water, why indeed then let him go under. And Mons was forcibly drowned in the Lamont River, according to what the city council of Zurich wanted. And that began a, an outburst against the rebaptizers, where whole villages of men, women, and children were slaughtered and put to death because they believe that one should be baptized upon profession of faith. It is a terrible story in church history. But why? Oh, are you finding this as interesting as I find it? I have so much to say, and I do need to bring this plane down. We need to get to the scriptures soon. But the reason is because, you see, in their mind, infant baptism was the symbol of Christendom. And remember, everybody was to be on the same page Everybody was to be a Christian in the, quote, Holy Roman Empire. And the idea that you could have a church that would be a sect within society rather than coextensive with it simply was not accepted. And so you have this terrible tragedy. A church historian told me that more rebaptizers were slaughtered in Europe after the Reformation than Christians who died in the persecutions of early Rome. So after this period of time, you have the Thirty Years' War, and finally, and finally, 1648, the Peace of Westphalia, in that peace, finally, it said in Europe, now you have freedom of religion. You can believe whatever you like, and it's possible for somebody to live in a state with a different religion than his prince or his king, and that is okay. That'll be manageable. So when our... Uh, People came over, the Puritans came over to America, by the way. The Puritans had the old, uh, the uh, European model of freedom. We sometimes say, well, the Puritans came over because they wanted freedom of religion. Of course, but it was freedom for themselves. And when Roger Williams, who was a Baptist, began to proclaim his beliefs, he was uh, asked to leave uh, New England. Why? Because of the fact that he believed that one should be baptized upon profession of faith. The Europeans came with the same model of thought. Now, when you get to the time of the American Constitution, you have something so revolutionary, it is unbelievable. 
And, and the American Constitution says that we can be united under one constitution and actually that which unites us is the constitution, but beneath that we can have people from this religion, that religion, or no religion, and you're still going to be regarded as a citizen, you're still going to be given your rights, you're still going to be given your opportunities. So this is indeed a great miracle for which we ought to give thanks. But we're living in a day and age when uh, our freedoms obviously are marginalized. As I'll mention in a few moments, dark days are coming to the United States of America. But the question is, how do we relate to these kinds of issues? How do we as Christians live now in a society where the Christian consensus, which America once had, obviously is being eroded and suddenly we're inundated by people of other religions, all of them demanding their rights, and we ask ourselves, what do we do? There are several possibilities. One is we could accommodate ourselves to the culture. That certainly is what the European church by and large has done. So the church in Europe today is very weak. It is true that there are pockets of uh, evangelism and so forth, but the great cathedrals are for the most part empty. They are called the tombs of God. That's one response to the secularism that came to Europe. A second is the privatization of religion. We can privatize our faith. We can say to ourselves that we're going to live in our little enclaves, we're going to have our little Bible studies, and we're going to be uh, doing that, and we're just going to let society as a whole just drift by us and let the world go its wicked way just as long as we preserve our little churches and our faith. And uh, we don't care about society. That's another possibility. Another possibility is a more militaristic approach where we see all of the people who are coming from other countries as our enemies and we need to fight against them and we need to be hostile in the midst of this culture that is becoming so diverse. The other possibility is engagement. Engagement. Where you look at our society and you say to ourselves, what a marvelous opportunity we have to serve God. Just imagine it used to be that we had to send missionaries to the far-flung places of the world and uh, to proclaim the gospel there. Now God is bringing those people to us in our culture. What an opportunity it is to interact, to befriend, and to make sure that people coming to our country meet Christians who love Jesus, who love them, and who share the good news of the gospel with them. Now, with that introduction, and I know it was a bit of a long one, but uh, I suppose your pastor has given long introductions from time to time, what I want you to do is to turn to the book of Philippians. I'm asking you to turn to Philippians because, as I mentioned, my wife and I were in Rome about six weeks ago, and I've been thinking about the book of Philippians because in Rome you can go to the Mamertine prison. If you've been to the Roman Forum, you know that that's where ancient Rome had all of its big buildings, all of its columns, all of its grandeur. And you walk past a building that is known as the Roman Senate. That's where Nero met. And, uh, of course, the building has been refurbished since those times, but that's the Roman Senate. And then you walk a couple of hundred yards and you suddenly come to the Mamertine prison, which many of you have probably visited. This prison is a very small one, but it dates back to 300 years before the time of Christ. Almost certainly 
It is the prison where the Apostle Paul was taken when he was in Rome. And you go into this prison and you can see there in this cave area a list of all the Christians who were martyred in that very cave. Perhaps 20, 30, whatever, uh, all of the Christians that are martyred. But that's not where Paul almost certainly was kept. He was kept in the dungeon below the prison, which you walk down some stairs to go where the Apostle Paul actually was, a small, uh, dank place where he was there. And what did Paul do? Now, just imagine Nero is on the throne. You have a man who is ruling, who is not a friend of Christians, if you know anything about Nero and history. He was not somebody who was going to take into account Christian interests. Paul had no representation on the Roman Senate. He couldn't say, well, you know, our interests should be represented in the Roman government because the church had no power. And it is in that context that Paul writes the book of Philippians and uh, tells the Christians how they should live. And by the way, I was tempted to actually use the book of 1 Peter because I could use any one of those epistles. Because remember this, the early church that we have represented in the New Testament was always an island of righteousness in a sea of paganism. And the Christian church had to survive in the midst of that. So we could use any one of those books to help us to find our way. But what I decided to do is to use the book of Philippians, and I would like to give you five mandates. Five mandates. I didn't fly all the way from Chicago yesterday to give you five suggestions. I didn't fly from Chicago yesterday to give you five new ideas that I think might work. If I'm going to come this far, I'm going to come and give you five mandates for the church in the midst of our present political situation, which most Christians acknowledge to be somewhat disappointing. All right. With that background, are you ready for the five mandates? And once again, those of you taking notes, God is going to bless you in ways that we can't even predict. I'll tell you that in heaven, your crown is going to be so heavy that your head is going to be tilted, all right? (laughs) What are the five mandates? Number one, the Apostle Paul says that what we must do is to choose the right battle. To choose the right battle. Look at verse 27 of chapter 1. Only let your manner be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving, and the Greek word striving is is almost an athletic term where you're working together as athletes, standing side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul says, number one, In the midst of this disappointing situation, you must stand firm for the gospel. Let me ask you a question. What is really the bottom line of America's problem? Is America's problem political? Is it moral? Is it uh, it, uh, racial? It's maybe all of those. But at root, the real issue in America still is a spiritual problem. And at root, the question is the gospel. Is the gospel the power of God unto salvation or is it not? At root, that is what we are confronted with. What I have discovered, and I'm sure you realize, is that the gospel, the gospel, we've lost confidence in the gospel as evangelicals. 
What a marvelous thing for me to be here and to see this congregation here. And I know you're a pastor who is committed to the scriptures and committed to the gospel, believing that it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. I need to tell you that this church is unusual. In America today, in evangelical circles, we have lost the gospel. In England, I read a book on how England, which was a Christian country, how it became so atheistic as it is today. And the author said that there was a period of transition in which the cross was still preached, but it was so bedecked with flowers that nobody could see it. And today we have so much preaching where the cross may be mentioned, but it is so bedecked of flowers of health and wealth that, that nobody can see its significance. Paul says that at root, the issue is the gospel. Now, should Christians be involved in politics? Obviously. Christians should vote. Christians should pray for their leaders. Christians should uh, support those political causes in which they are interested. They can join various various organizations that are pro-life when we have the opportunity of voting in opposition to gay marriage and what have you. uh, We should be there doing it. I do not believe, however, that a minister of the gospel should ever endorse a political candidate. That is so far out, and we have, we have uh, disgraced the name of Jesus. Because if you, if you endorse a political candidate who's a Republican, for example, you, you have undercut your possibility of preaching the gospel to Democrats, for one thing or the other way around. And furthermore, what happens is this. Then you endorse all of his policies. You may agree with him regarding certain issues, but not necessarily in others. But if he's, if he's your man, well, I could tell you stories of people who have been endorsed uh, by, um, by ministers, and then they went to Washington, and they were a tremendous disappointment. That is not our responsibility. The politicalization of the gospel in America by some of our friends in the religious right has hurt us very, very much. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the cross must always stand above all political parties because we say to Republicans, to Democrats, and to independents, if you don't believe in Jesus, you will be lost forever. And that message can never be tied to a political party or to a political candidate. Today, if you ask people what Christianity is, they will give you a variety of answers, but almost none will say it's the belief that Jesus is the only way to the Father. We have uh, confused the issues by the way in which we have reacted. Involved, yes, but always involved with a sense of independence. Now I've talked to you about Martin Luther When you go to the Wartburg Castle, it is there that Luther uh, translated the New Testament into German in 11 weeks and wrote all kinds of theological treatises in in the 10 months that he was there. By the way, he was hidden there after the Diet of Worms so that he wouldn't be put to death. But when you go there, that's supposedly the place where he threw an inkwell at the devil. And it used to be that tour guides would rub a little soot on the wall to show you where the inkwell landed because, you know, you pay so much to go to Europe. You have so many stairs to go up, it's a little disappointing if you don't see where the inkwell landed. But I'm not so sure that Luther threw an inkwell at the devil. He said in his table talks, I fought the devil with ink. What he meant was, I think, I fought the devil by the translation of the New Testament into German. That's the way to fight the devil. 
You give people the word of God. There isn't a devil around who's going to fear somebody who's going to throw an inkwell at them. Oh boy, that one just whizzed by. I have to miss this one. That's not the way you fight the devil. I believe, folks, that much of our politicalization of the gospel is something like throwing inkwells at the devil. If we really want to do damage to the kingdom of Satan, we give people the word of God and we give them the good news of the gospel. Paul says, here I am in prison. Would you please stand firm for the cause of the gospel? That is his first priority. So the first mandate is we must choose the right battle. Secondly, we must pay the right price. We must pay the right price. You'll notice it says that uh, in verse 28, do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. Don't be scared because you watch CNN. This is a clear sign of them, of their destruction, but to you of your salvation and that from God. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe on him, but also suffer for his sake. It is granted to you. I think that Bonhoeffer was absolutely right when he said that Until the church sees suffering as a gift of God, until the church sees suffering as a sign of divine favor, all that we're going to do is to complain and we're not going to suffer very well, but it is granted to you. I believe that dark days are coming to the United States of America. As I mentioned, there are people in Washington who believe that we are the enemy and we are to be silenced. There's legislation that almost passed except for two senators who were against it on the basis of a technicality called hate speech. Hate speech is the idea that if I am preaching opposed to homosexuality, for example, and somebody hears me and then they go and, uh, and commit a crime, I can be taken to prison because I'm the one that incited them by hate speech. In fact, there's a man who's filing a lawsuit against the Bible because the Bible offended him and it is filled, he says, with hate speech. Let me tell you what hate speech legislation does. In Canada, there is a young man by the name of Mark Harding who objected to the Quran being given out to students at school, arguing that if the Quran is to be given out to students at school, surely we should also give the Bible out. Well, this uh, escalated into some things, I guess, that were said. So he is convicted under Canada's hate speech law. He received 300 telephone calls and emails full of hate. Most of them were death threats. When he was taken to court, he needed uh, police protection because you had all of these people with signs, you know, die infidel, go to hell infidel, burn in hell, etc., etc. Now, that apparently was not hate speech, but what he did was turned out that as it went from one uh, issue to another, he ended up by having to do 300 hours of community service in a Muslim center um, as he uh, paid his dues, so to speak, to Canada's hate speech laws. Rebecca and I have just come from talking with a man who is widely known in America on on radio and uh, actually owns radio stations, Christian stations. And he says that the fairness doctrine has a good chance of passing in the next administration. Absolutely chilling. He said it would destroy our radio ministry. The fairness doctrine says that if you say something that is controversial, like the radical idea that Jesus is the only way to God, 
you may have to have then on the same radio station, if you have 20 minutes of a defense that Jesus is the only way to God, you'll have to, in order to be fair, have 20 minutes where somebody rebuts you and presents a different point of view to be completely fair. It would destroy broadcasting as we know it. There are other things that are happening in Washington, D.C., other clouds on the horizon. The time may no longer be when we can simply take for granted the freedom that the founding fathers intended. What shall we do? Are we going to back down? Are we going to begin to trim our messages to make sure that we are under the radar so that we are not guilty of hate speech? No, we're going to continue to preach the gospel, and we're going to discover that the name of Jesus, as it was in the book of Acts, is always going to be a point of contention. People are going to argue with us about the name, the name. You can use the name of Jesus, but not in an exclusive sense. And you can preach the word, but there are certain passages that you can't preach. What are we going to do? We are going to continue to preach, and we're going to continue to teach, and we're going to continue to serve God. And in the end, whatever the penalty is, we'll endure that penalty. Why? Because it has been granted to you in the name of Jesus to suffer for his sake. We've not had to do that in America before. Some of us are so old that perhaps we will not have to do it, but our children will and certainly our grandchildren. Suffering, I believe, is just around the corner. It may happen. But secondly, we must pay the right price. Third, uh, we must uh, have the right attitude. We must have the right attitude. You know, in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul uses Jesus as an example of a servant. You know this passage very, very well. I shall not read it. But you'll notice he says in verse 3, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in you which was in Christ. And the whole idea is that Jesus came and humbled himself, as we know, and Jesus said, I am come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And what we must do is to have the mindset of Jesus. Now, sometimes we as Christians, because we can become angry over what is happening in our country, we don't necessarily represent Jesus well. But our attitude should be that of Christ where we are thinking of ways to serve our communities, where we are thinking of ways to authenticate our message by our lives and by our love. We have to reach out to people in troubled waters. Uh, What we need to do is to treat people with respect with whom we disagree, even though the disagreement may be very important. When a member of the of the uh, Congress is sworn in with his hand on a Quran rather than the Bible. We turn and we weep for our nation and we cry up to God on behalf of this country. But we don't shout at him as he walks onto the Capitol steps. We don't condemn him publicly and stand there and and think that uh, we are the ones who are to do the condemning of what is happening. We give him the same respect that we expect in return. We expect freedom of religion. We give freedom of religion to others as well. So we treat them with a sense of respect and honor and service. 
You know, Cyprian in the early church said that the Christianity would have never, never advanced. It would have never advanced like it did were it not for the plagues. He said the plagues advanced the gospel. Why? Because the Christians died differently. They died with hope. The pagans said of the Christians, they carry their dead as if in triumph. And it is because of that that they had this tremendous credibility in the midst of paganism. And we need to get back to that. You say, Pastor Lutzer, what can we do if we have a thousand people here? Imagine if in a thousand homes we were to invite our non-Christian neighbors and we were to befriend them and love them and care about them and eventually God in his grace may give us a great open door to share the gospel with them. Ultimately, I believe that the best news that we will never hear is news that comes to us from Washington. The best news that we will ever hear will come from the lives and the lips of believers who will tell others about the Savior who redeemed them from their sins. And if we are going to turn this nation around, it's going to be up to us. Uh, The politicians won't do it, but it is God's people living in God's name. Could I simply say this, that the world can out-entertain us, the world can out-finance us, the world can outnumber us, but let it never be said that the world can out-love us. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given unto us. May that be true. So third, we must have the right attitude. Fourth, we must run the right race. We must run the right race. You know, the Apostle Paul says these things in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent. Now there's an agenda for the church, blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, and that's our generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. You see, the Christian church has always had to be lights in the midst of great darkness. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul says, if I'm going to die, I'll even be glad. That's a story in itself. Notice he says in verse 14. I press, he says in verse 13, to what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. And so there again, Paul is talking about running a race and running it successfully. Augustine, who wrote the book entitled The City of God, said that there are two cities. He said there's the city of man and there's the city of God. When Rome was destroyed by the vandal in 420... Augustine said that those who belong to the city of man lost everything because this is their whole life. But those who belong to the city of God lost nothing permanent because they look for a city which hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. And what he says is that in the process of living this life of two cities and two different citizenships, Paul says later on in Philippians, by the way, our polytuma is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, the point is, we're to help the city of man. We're here to benefit the world in its darkness and its horrendous headlines that come to us every single day. But at the same time, we recognize that we are running toward the prize of faithfulness, being faithful to God and uh, 
It is necessary for us to to be faithful. It is not necessary for us to win politically. It is not necessary for us to have our way. It is not necessary for us to take the cross of Christ and use it as a club to make the world shape up. We must be faithful to run the race even against great odds, which may include martyrdom, as it was for the Apostle Paul. You see, even freedom of religion can be an idol. We can say to ourselves, I want my freedom of religion and look at our rights are being trampled on and maybe they are and look at what is happening in Washington and look at the darkness of our political scene and we can rail against it. Or we can say this, it is not possible or it is not necessary rather for us to win in this life in order to win in the next. Churches throughout history have been faithful to the gospel even without freedom of religion because they've seen the bigger picture. God is after faithfulness, not necessarily a church that enjoys all kinds of freedoms. Look at the church in China. Here's a church that uh, when communism took over in 1949, there were a half million Christians. Now they estimate somewhere between 30 and 50 million believers in a regime that was strongly hostile to the Christian faith. No radio, no Christian radio, no Christian television, and, and individual believers telling other individual believers about Jesus, and the faith began to grow. As a matter of fact, per capita, you have more Christians in China today than you do in Taiwan, which had freedom. So the real issue is we don't have to be discouraged when we see the news. We don't have to say to ourselves, well, you know, it's time for the rapture. Everybody wants the rapture when things go bad. People sometimes say to me, Pastor Lutzer, do you think times have ever been this bad? And I say to them, you know, uh, times have seldom been this good. We have a thousand people here and I'm preaching the gospel and saying what is on my heart and I'm not being monitored by the uh, secret police and I'm not going to be arrested afterwards so far as I know, all right? So we have many opportunities and our job is to be faithful, to be faithful and not necessarily to be successful in seeing our point of view prevail even though we would like that to happen. So that's the fourth point. We must run the right race. You know, speaking about uh, running the right race uh, in the Boxer Rebellion, since I was talking about China, Boxer Rebellion, because they actually did calisthenics. In the early 1900s, they wanted to wipe out all Western influence in China. And uh, they went to a Christian school and they laid a cross on the ground at the step. And they told the students that if when you come out you step on the cross, that is to say that you despise the cross, you'll be allowed to live. But if you walk around the cross respecting it, you'll be put to death. The first eight students actually stepped on the cross and they were allowed to live. The ninth, who was a girl, prayed that God would give her grace to walk around the cross and show her respect for it and she was shot. And according to one account I read, all of the other students followed her example and they all died. Were they winners? Well, they were not winners in this life. But my dear Christian friend, we believe in another world. We believe in another world. And we don't have to win in this life in order to win in the next. God says, are you going to run the race faithfully? And then finally, number five, we must have the right focus. The right focus. 
And uh, for this, I think I will use the words of the Apostle Paul here, even in verse 10 of chapter 3, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I might attain the resurrection of the dead. And by the way, speaking of focus, look at verse 20. But our citizenship, there's the word, is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body like unto his glorious body by the power that enables him even to those who subjected all things to himself. Our focus must be on Christ. I'm going to leave you with a story in Second Chronicles chapter 20. King Jehoshaphat is surrounded by an army that looks so formidable. And uh, he's outnumbered. He calls the people together to fast and to pray. At Moody Church, we have two days of fasting and prayer, one in the fall, one in the spring. And we call people to fast and to pray, to repentance and to seek God. One of the things we discovered is that um, when, we call, uh, when we call a feast, we get a lot more people than when we call a fast. We've noticed that. <laughs> Uh, When we call a fast, um, you know, we don't have a lot, but when we call a feast, we have people who come out of the woodwork whom we thought died during the days of Ironside. Everybody's there. Jehoshaphat proclaims a fast, and then he prays a marvelous prayer, confessing the sins of the people, and then he says these wonderful words, Oh God, we do not know what to do. But our eyes are upon you. Isn't that beautiful? You look at America today, our political situation is not a very happy one. We don't know what to do. But our eyes are upon God. And then he says this, choir. You're a member of the choir. The Bible says that he asked the singers, the choir, to go into the battle first. They were the front line. Remember that choir. And as they sang praise to God, God came along and gave the victory. I think my time is up. I think we should pray right here. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the United States. We thank you for its great and marvelous freedoms that we've taken for granted. We thank you today for your people and the witness that they are as lights in the darkness. And we ask, Father God, that you will help us to carry from this message a vision of what we can do one-on-one, witnessing to your love, transforming our communities with the gospel, actively involved in the lives of those who are part of this broken, hurting world. And then, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. We think of the political year ahead and the months ahead. And all that we do is cry up to you for our own, confessing our own sins, seeking purity, seeking holiness, seeking hope in the midst of the darkness through Jesus Christ our Lord. Invigorate your people. And we pray, Lord, that we may leave here with deep gratitude for the privileges and the freedoms we still have. And may we use them wisely these frail words to be burned upon our soul today, we pray. In Jesus' blessed name, amen.